A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or CartmacrossCU.ie Thursday morning, the 2nd of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 3,281 children are homeless in this country. 6,484 adults are homeless. That's a total of 10,305 people who are homeless and that includes 1,733 families who don't have a place that they can call home. The government is making progress on tackling this crisis but the difficulty is that people are still becoming homeless at a very fast rate. This is according to the Taoiseach Leo Vradker who was asked about this yesterday. The current figures amounting to more people than ever before being recorded as homeless. He said, I have full confidence in Owen Murphy as Housing Minister. It's very difficult. It's a difficult job. Owen Murphy did not cause the housing crisis. That was caused by other people before this government took up office. And we shouldn't forget the record of some of the opposition parties when it comes to housing. Uh, We had hoped to speak with local TD and uh, Junior Minister for Housing, uh, Damien English, to explain what uh, the Taoiseach meant by those comments. Uh, But Uh, The Minister isn't available to us uh, today. We are joined by one of uh, the opposition spokespersons, Ono Bryn, who's Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on housing. A very good morning to you and uh, thank you indeed for joining us. I'm sure you'll agree with the Taoiseach on one thing. It is a a difficult job. But how is Owen Murphy faring out, do you think? Well, the first thing I'd say is it it actually isn't a difficult job. Um, There have been plenty of periods in Irish history where governments with far less access to resources than the current current government were able to build uh, large volumes of social houses uh, and support working families uh, in secure affordable accommodation. So this isn't rocket science. This isn't like the complexities of the health system. This is really about saying how many houses do we need to meet social and affordable housing demand? And then are we going to invest to build them? What I'd also say is it's simply dishonest uh, uh, to argue that Fine Gael haven't created this crisis. They've been governed since 2011. Uh, and from 2011 to 2014, Leo Owen Murphy and the rest of, of their party voted to slash expenditure in social housing. Uh, and they closed down the affordable housing scheme. So 
while they are right, Fianna Fáil created the, the property boom and the property mm. crash pre-2011, Fine Gael did everything to make it worse. And probably uh, before that, in fairness, uh, to Fianna Fáil, because no, Fine Gael were Fianna Fáil's greatest cheerleaders, and uh, I think at the time uh, they were talking about abolishing stamp duty and all of that exactly. back in, in 2007 or thereabouts. 2007, and yeah. during that mm-hmm. time, uh, uh, when you had that kind of auction politics around stamp duty, Sinn Féin was one of the few parties, Arthur Morgan, if you remember, was our TD fell out, who were arguing against such measures. So Fine Gael have a huge responsibility for the mess that we're in. But the bigger problem, of course, is the plan that they have in place since 2016 simply isn't working. And I don't know what surreal planet Leo Varadkar works at, lives on. But, but to say that the plan is working when every single month the number of adults and, and children and families in emergency accommodation grows just shows you they don't understand the failure of their own plan. Are they building some more council houses? They are, but nowhere near enough to meet demand. Are they providing any affordable housing for working families to rent and buy? No, not a single such home has been delivered since this government has been in place. Mm. Are they taking enough measures to stem the flow of adults and children into homelessness? No, that's why those figures are increasing. So, you know, if you look at almost any indicator, uh, uh, this plan is not working and, and the chorus of voices saying this isn't working is growing. But can they can they build the houses at, at quicker enough a, a rate? Uh, see, no is the answer. I mean, this is the government argument. Uh, the Taoiseach was saying yesterday that they built 18,000 new houses last year uh, and they're hoping to get that up to 25,000 houses a year. And, and, and here's the problem. You see, if, if, if Leo Varadkar had just taken office and if Fine Gael hadn't been in office for eight years, uh, that argument would be credible. But they've been in government since 2011. This plan has been in place since 2016. Uh, and while 18,000 houses were delivered between the private sector and the public sector last year, uh, the target for last year was 25,000. So they were well short of the target last year. Uh, and the target is meant to be higher than 25,000 this year and at least 30,000 next year. And they're not going to meet those targets either. Uh, and And the growing chorus of voices saying this plan is working is the reason why uh, on the 18th of mm. May in Dublin there will be a national rally organised by the Raise the Roof campaign that's led by the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, the National Women's Council of Ireland, the Union of Students of Ireland, almost every homeless organisation in Ireland, calling on people to get out on the streets because uh, it's clear that the government aren't listening to their own statistics, they're mm. not listening to the families at the acute edge of the homeless crisis. So what we need is we need to start seeing massive mobilisations, like we did with the Right to Water movement, so that Fine Gael in particular, but also Fianna Fáil, start to realise this policy of rebuilding Ireland is broken, isn't working and needs to change. And, and the opposition on October 3rd mm. uh, of last year, you had me on your show after that, by a large majority agreed the core principles of an alternative plan, which would be better. That's what Fine Gael needs to start to do. But... If you talk about 2011 and how Fine Gael has been in office since then, should you not also reflect on the environment uh, and the economic environment of eight years ago? Because, I mean, we're talking about a, a time uh, where unemployment was probably up around 15%, uh, where we were recovering from the crash, the deficit, uh, the national deficit uh, was massive, uh, and uh, we were continuing uh, to try and shore up all of these problems following on from the crash. So the money wasn't there, uh, the job solution... In fact, fact, the money was there. One of the first things the Fine Gael Labour government did uh, after being elected is they took €13 billion out of the Strategic Investment Fund and they gave it to the banks. What we argued at the time is 
given that there was a growing number of people from the construction industry professions. Ah, but sure, Fine Gael was, Fine Gael was arguing me, the same, but... but, uh, me, but no, 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 let, let me... Let, let me it was Jean-Claude Frichet who told him me, a bomb would go off me, in the heart of me, the Dublin Financial let me, Centre. Let, let me answer the question, because mm. you said there wasn't money. What I'm saying is this. €13 billion Euros of public money, the Strategic Investment Fund, was given to banks. A portion of that money could have been taken out, could have been used to keep construction workers in employment. And given that building houses is cheapest at the point of a recession, mm. because materials are cheaper, mm. it would have made more economic sense. So what a sensible government would do, and in fact what the Irish government did during the recessions of the 40s, late 40s and early 50s, was precisely at a point of recession. You know, in, instead of getting people go out of work and claiming unemployment benefits, they got them into building, got them into construction. That's what sensible governments do, and we did have the money to do it at that stage. But Fianna Fáil uh, uh, and Labour, like Fianna Fáil before mm. them, decided to shore up the banks and not to shore up working families and provide homes. That would have been much, much more cost-effective then. So they could have done it, but they chose not to. With do a gun it. to their Worse heads. Than that. Worse than that. No, they didn't. They, they didn't have a gun to their heads. These were political choices they made. But worse than that, they then continued to slash expenditure. So, for example, in, mm. in 2013, investment in housing in this state uh, uh, by the government was at the lowest in history. We produced the fewest number of public houses in the entire history of the state under Fine Gael. Mm. So what I'm saying is this. That's the reason why we are where we are. Well, 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 well just back up, a, just, just say, back up before you conclude the point, uh, because uh, I think the point needs to be argued a, a little bit. In fairness, uh, we had hoped to, to have uh, Damien English uh, with us. Uh, he's not available, as I say, and I don't mean to uh, defend uh, the government uh, or, or, or uh, any such like. But if I remember correctly, in 2011, Michael Noonan was going to go into the Dáil uh, and announce that he was going to burn the bondholders. But uh, within... Hours of him announcing the budget that year, it was the governor the, uh, of the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, who told him that a bomb would go off in the heart of Dublin's that's, financial centre. That's, that's, with the greatest of respect, that, that's a different set of arguments. What I'm saying is, separate to all of that, and, and I have a strong view in opposition to, to Michael Noonan's eventual actions, what I'm saying is, some of the money, some of that 13 billion of taxpayers' money uh, in the summer of 2011 uh, that was siphoned off by the banks, could have been used to keep construction workers in work and to build homes. Now, where are we today? We are in a position where the government is spending half of what is required uh, uh, to deliver public homes on public land to meet social affordable housing needs. So they need to double that level of capital investment mm. and they can do it within the existing fiscal rules and fiscal space that's there. We demonstrated how they can do it. That means you would move to 14,000, 15,000 public homes. Some would be social, some would be affordable on an annual basis. You would need to cut the delivery time. There's far too much bureaucracy in the Department of Housing. You and I have spoken about that before. But unless you're investing an adequate level of capital to provide homes to meet social affordable housing need, the crisis is going to get worse. Many people were surprised. Let's let's, uh, let's not forget as well, just uh, whilst we're uh, looking back on history, a lot of people were surprised uh, at when Arthur Morgan... Uh, directed your party in terms of its position on the banking guarantee and Sinn Féin supported the banking guarantee. Sure, and at the time I, I, I argued publicly that we shouldn't have done that, but, but that's a decision that was taken back then. But none of that... But that put an obligation it, on the state, did it not? It did, but, but none of that... And the 13 billion that you referred to. None, none of that... So Sinn Féin was part of the problem? No. no. So first of all, the 13 billion was, was given away before the bank guarantee. None of that... Uh, would have uh, uh, prevented the government taking several billion euros of that 30 billion and investing in housing. But my point, and, and your listeners 
because homelessness hasn't just increased in Dublin, it's increased in Louth and in Meath uh, uh, over the last month, according to the figures released uh, earlier this week. What listeners want to know now is what is going to be done to increase the amount of social housing, but also to start to provide affordable rental and affordable purchase homes uh, for, for working families out there. And what I'm saying is this, the government has to change policy. It has to double capital investment in social affordable housing. It has to fast-track the delivery of homes by removing the bureaucracy. It has to take more measures to stem the flow of families into homelessness. And it has to tackle the spiralling cost of rent by a three-year rent freeze mm. and one month refundable tax credit. Now, Fine Gael has said they won't do any of that, which is why on May the 18th in Dublin at one o'clock, assembling at the Garden of Remembrance, we need thousands of people from every county in Ireland who are affected by this failed housing policy of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to mobilise and say very, very clearly, in this election, European and local, and the general election that follows, housing is the number one issue of public concern. Every opinion poll we've seen since the end of last year has said that. The government's policy is failing. Leo Varadkar is burying his head in the sand if he thinks it's working uh, and if he thinks Owen Murphy is doing a good job. But I think at this stage, because it's clear they're not listening to us on the opposition benches of the doll at this point in time, we need large-scale public mobilisation to demand a better housing policy to meet people's needs. Mm. And how will the Taoiseach continue to meet people's needs? Uh, because uh, the Taoiseach will probably be the next Taoiseach, and if he's not, Michal Martin will be. Uh, and it's quite probable uh, that the policies uh, that we're witnessing today will continue to be pursued and people will continue to get a fiver back in their pockets every budget here from here on out. And look, that, that's a choice the electorate has to make. Well, exactly. Um, uh, and and what you can see is, for example, if you look at government approval ratings, about 70% of the electorate don't believe this government is doing a good job. So what I would say to people is, is particularly those people who are concerned by or directly affected by the failure of housing policy, more indeed health or other... Yeah, areas, but they like the fiver in their pocket, which is why they continue to re-elect I, them. I think that's changing. And that's why, for example, the combined Fianna Fáil-Fianna Gael vote in the last election started to fall. If you want real change, if you want the kinds of services that people need to live good quality lives, whether it's childcare, healthcare or housing, we need to change policy and change levels of investment. And that can be done in a way that is fair. Where do you get the money for that? For making sure banks pay their fair share of tax, multinational Mm. corporations and very, very high earners. It is possible to do it. Other countries do it. And we have to start doing it here. And you're right, Michael, absolutely. That means people need to think more carefully about how they vote and political parties like ours who are offering alternatives, need to become much more effective in convincing people that there's a better way of doing this so people aren't paying 1,000 to 2,000 euros a, mm. a month on rent or people aren't paying 50 to 60 pounds euros every time they go to CGP or aren't paying 10, 15, 20,000 euros a year for childcare. It doesn't have to be that way. People don't have to be pinned to the collar despite the fact that they're working. But to do that, we need to elect different parties to govern the country differently. What about these communal developments uh, that people would have seen on TV last night? Uh, which are like uh, elaborate hostels or hotels uh, that you live in. Uh, uh, Is that a better way forward? I have a concern here. Look, in some big uh, global cities, there are what they call these shared living spaces. And they're generally for very, very well paid, very mobile uh, 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 workers who work for things like Google, etc. Now, if we had a small amount of that in Dublin for those types of people, I wouldn't have a problem. 
My big worry is the investment companies who are getting into this market aren't in this for the long term. So they're going to come in, they're going to build these. And if there isn't a market, they'll sell, get out. And these could end up being the the tenements and the ghettos of, of the 21st century. So I think we need to look at this very, very carefully. If there is a demand from that section of the workforce for this kind of shared living, I'm not opposed to it. But what I would say is this. The greatest demand in Dublin at the minute, particularly within the city centre, is for affordable accommodation for working single people, couples and families. And none of that is being built. So if you're a young couple and if you're on 45 or 50,000 euros a year, the entry rent in Dublin city centre at the moment are 2,200 euros a month. Like, how in God's name is any working couple, uh, 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 even in a half-decent job, meant to afford that? If you look at what's happening, for example, in Dublin 1, 2, 7 and 8, the core of our city centre... Everything that's been built are high-end student accommodation for international students uh, or hotels. And there's no affordable accommodation for working families. So some of this public debate around shared living spaces, it's a bit gimmicky. There are some worries. Mm. Our debate should be how do we provide good quality, affordable uh, accommodation for working people on scale in communities that have proper amenities, proper schools, proper public transport. Uh, And that's really where we need to be moving. And then as you move out of Dublin, because... We have huge pressure points, for example, in Dundalk and Drogheda. How do we make sure that the accommodation in our smaller towns and cities is genuinely affordable? How do we better use vacant stock? And how do we deliver new stock that meets the needs of the local communities, particularly in smaller towns and cities outside of Dublin? All right, no doubt we'll be back talking about this at the end of next month and the month after that. But we leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Ono Bryn, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. The President of uh, the High Court has uh, suspended a doctor from the medical register saying he was registered after making dishonest representations and when his competence was entirely substandard. Mary Carolyn reports from the High Court on this case and how this doctor was registered here in July 2018 and worked in South Tipperary General Hospital in Mayo University Hospital and as the Irish Times reports in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan having been referred by an approved locum agency. The paper also says uh, that the suspension application was made during a private hearing this week, but last week, but the judge gave his ruling in public this week. He said the reason for this was that it had put patient safety and the safety of the public in jeopardy. And he also said uh, that the suspension should be made public and notified to various parties. Let's talk about this with Stephen McMahon, who's uh, the co-founder of the Irish Patients Association. Good morning to you, Stephen, and thanks for joining us. By all accounts, uh, the... Uh, shortcomings in this man's qualifications should have been known to Our Lady's Hospital in Navan and the other institutions that he, he worked in but it does seem to be a remarkable story given that this man was struck off the register in the UK in 2016 I think it was. Absolutely, it was. it's a shocking uh, report because of the fact that um, the doctor was struck off for a number of different reasons both maintaining his level of competency, in other words his knowledge of, uh, of, of medicine but also because of the fact that he had a, an inclination to uh, verbally uh, be racist in, against certain um, racist people. And uh, I'm not going to repeat the quotes that were given in the General Medical Council's um, findings. But to be honest, um, with, your, with your researcher yesterday, we were able to turn up the General Medical Council in the UK's 
complete report into the um, into the hearing of that doctor in less than two minutes. And it raises the question, like, why wasn't he checked by the Irish uh, employer uh, to see if there had been um, any complaints against him or any findings against him uh, in, in other jurisdictions? Well, I, I take it that there was suspicions about his ability in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan and somebody who was working alongside this doctor, Dr. Rageb Newman, Googled him, uh, or I imagine that that was the case, but they discovered that he had been struck off in the UK. Yes, but the point I'm making is, though, that, um, and this is for the benefit of your listeners and people that use uh, our hospitals or have an urgent need out of the blue to, 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 to use them, is the fact that these there are systems there, such as regulators, who maintain registers of people practicing in a particular area of of of, of medicine, whether it's doctors or nurses or uh, physiotherapists, and it only takes you two seconds for an employer to go in and check that register. It shouldn't be up to somebody saying, "Oh, Steve isn't really up to the job here," and I'll Google his name and I'll see what comes mm. up there. It should be a matter of practice by the employer. If this isn't the first time that a doctor has been um, employed by the Irish healthcare system um, that, that was not, that was overemployed or, should I say, beyond their capacity to work. And indeed, the General Medical Council in the UK uh, gave a very polite um, tap on the, on, on the wrist to the Irish system where a doctor had been struck off here because uh, she couldn't take a pulse. And when it was investigated, when she, she did the same thing, she didn't declare it in the UK. And when, when the medical, uh, the GEMC looked into her case, they said, well, really, the employer had a responsibility to ensure that this doctor was competent to do the job that was expected. Mm. Now, in this case here, uh, you know, the, the, the president of the High Court has to be congratulated by the fact he went public. You know, it, the whole thing was being held in private, and yet, thankfully, the, the findings were made public, which showed up a serious uh, um, um, uh, um, difficulty mm. with the regulator, the medical council, where they were notified of the finding, but for some reason or other, um, it, you know, it wasn't, um, it couldn't be implemented because of some uh, system inconsistency between the two um, 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 jurisdictions and that needs to be addressed urgently by the Minister in the interest of public and patient safety. Yeah, this is it uh, and from reading Mary Carlin's uh, report in the Irish Times, I take it that Peter Kelly, Kelly was dumbfounded by this. Uh, Peter Kelly is uh, the highest judge in the land, the President of the High Court but Justice Kelly said uh, that there seemed uh, to be little point in having uh, this system, a European notification system when a doctor is struck off the register as was the case in the UK uh, it's noted then on this system which is available to the Irish authorities but uh, it went under their radar for some reason. He said it was wholly unsatisfactory. Absolutely and, and, and importantly he says it puts patient safety and the safety of the public in jeopardy. Now you know the, the government and others have to listen to what's being said in a fair manner when you know, when due process has been fully um, um, ex- 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 executed and so on. Mm. And uh, here we have a situation now that the, the, the courts have said that the system that's in place of notification between two jurisdictions is, is has a deficit there and it needs to be fixed. And it needs to be fixed urgently because, in a way, it's not fair to all of the good foreign doctors and nurses and so on that are working in Ireland uh, to have a sort of suspicion about, well, could they have a problem uh, in, in their home? Home country. When they're employed, the HSE and the HR function should, as a matter of course, do the due diligence and check their credentials, regardless of the fact that they're saying they're registered in the Irish system, but also check other jurisdictions where they've worked. 
Dr. Ragab Newman was struck off in the UK due to misconduct, deficient professional performance, including making racist comments about Indian doctors and Indian people in general. Uh, Should people be concerned if they were under his care in Navin? And if so, what should they do about it? Well, I think if they have any concerns that they should certainly contact the, uh, the, the, the management in the, in the hospital and ask, you know, if they had concerns about the way that they were treated to raise those issues. Um, certainly you have mentioned a particular race and if any people from, uh, of Indian origin that maybe have been treated by the doctor to, you know, and they felt that there was a problem there that they should also raise it because it was really, terrible things that uh, this doctor was saying mm. about, about about these people and it's just so uh, it's just so shocking to see it because you know you, you go into hospital uh, and colleagues go into work there and they expect that they're all focused on the patient and not to have to put up with the sort of bigotry and so on that was being described at that time. Yeah, um, and it may be of surprise uh, to some people to know that he's a Syrian national himself. He qualified as a doctor in Romania, but uh, he denies uh, being racist against Indians. Uh, but to uh, all accounts, uh, the quotes uh, that are reported uh, to have been attributed to him could only be identified as being racist. Uh, he was struck off not just because of his attitude towards certain races, but because of his uh, professionalism as a doctor. There were problems with his assessment, his clinical management, as well as his relationship with patients and working with colleagues. Uh, There was a knowledge test that he sat uh, and he'd have scored less than half of what most doctors would have scored in that particular test. And this is, you know, what you've read out there is an appalling litany of deficiencies in a professional uh, where their high standards are expected on a continuous basis, not just for occasional, uh, you know, moments, but for on, as part of their ongoing job. And, you know, again, I think really if we have to take a lesson out of this is the GMC in the UK upheld the various, or uh, sorry, found that he was in breach of the various um, charges that were put to him and they took appropriate action. The problem was that when they notified the Irish authorities of that, for some reason or other, the system doesn't uh, connect in that uh, level and therefore he was allowed to be registered in the Irish system. And that is should be the focus of our attention, is how uh, was this gentleman registered in the Irish healthcare system when they had a red flag up about him uh, from another jurisdiction. And, and if there are more that, like him. And indeed, and this is, you know, very true, exactly that, you know, that it needs to be that that the HSE needs to be able to demonstrate that the people that they have employed and they're under enormous pressure. We all know the pressures that, you know, family doctors are and and, and, and elsewhere to get our numbers up. But that mustn't mean that we, you know, that we that we sort of have that that we can be surprised out of left field because somebody can get his net because we know that there's a particular deficiency in a certain area. At the end of the day, this is all about patient safety and protecting the public. And everybody has a part to play in that. When patients come to us and share their experience, you know, in a way, they are actually sharing what has happened with them, uh, obviously to try and see and find um, an explanation as to what happened to, the, to them uh, with, their, with their encounter with the healthcare system, but equally to make sure that it doesn't happen to others. Mm. And if we can identify 
areas of weakness in the system as a result of those experiences being shared, well, then we try and uh, affect a change in the system so that it doesn't happen to other people. Now, let's hope that this is the last of this. And as you quite rightly point out there, let the system demonstrate that everybody that's currently in there is competent and fit for purpose for the job that's expected of them so that they can work in harmony with their colleagues and that we don't have any sort of individuals out there that can make feel, people feel lesser because of their faith or their colour or, their, or where they originally came from. Okay. The remarkable story that led to Dr. Rajib Newman being suspended from the medical register in the High Court yesterday. Stephen, thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Stephen McMahon, co-founder of the Irish Patients Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. On the 24th of May, you'll be asked to vote in the local and European elections and a referendum on divorce. In the European elections in this constituency, there are 17 candidates. And before polling day, we hope to speak to each of the candidates as well as hold a series of debates. Today, we're joined by the Green Party candidate for the Midlands Northwest constituency, and that is Sir. McHugh, who has come in to us uh, today, and a uh, very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, you've travelled some distance, in fact, to be with us today. You wouldn't believe the miles I'm clocking up. Like, mm. and people always say, "Oh, your your shoes must be worn out," but I think for the European elections, it's the tyres of the car worn out. Okay, it's mm. an enormous constituency. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a young person, uh, all the way from Ackle Island. Yeah, I'm 28. I'm from. The furthest village west on Ackle Island, so I don't think you could get further away in the constituency. And I I still live there, so I'd be one of the few people my own age living there, I'd say. Um, and as in how I got into politics, I was always an environmentalist. And what I started doing was going to all different politicians. I wasn't party affiliated mm. at the time and saying, because I think this should be done with our health system as well, saying why don't we get one overarching policy we can all agree on? Because there was a lot of environmental policies that were sitting there and still are actually in front of the government and were just kind of being used as a power play, um, yeah, an area for winning points, really, rather than actually trying to work together. So in my naivety, I started going, I have these really positive conversations and they'd nod and they'd nod and, and I'd leave thinking, oh, that's great now. They're going to sort that out and that's fine. And eventually, you know, they stopped replying to my emails. And so eventually one day I was talking to Eamon Ryan and what I was talking about that day was trying to get the trade unions involved because we are going to need the trade unions involved. Um, Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, well, why don't you run? And I had never thought about it till that mm. day and I must have been nuts. And I said, OK, fine, I will. Mm. And so here I am because I suppose the only reason I would have to say no would be fear and that's not really a okay. much of a reason no. is it yeah. <laughs> what would you be afraid of oh it's it's getting used to like the cameras getting getting used mm. to people all of a sudden you move into a different area where people don't talk to you like a person they talk to you like like public property um so I think in the last four or five months, people have spoken to me in ways I've never been spoken to in my whole life. And just getting used to that. I think a lot of politicians, you know, they just have steel necks on them and it will it just washes off them like water off a duck's back. And a couple of times it's, it's taken me almost a day to recover to something someone said. Like on, uh, okay. on the Internet, I've just started blocking some people, you know, in the mm. beginning I would try and 
talk to them. But I mean, you wouldn't be used to the internet. I don't think you had a, a social media account before you decided to run, did you? No, years ago when I was doing my masters, I deleted my Facebook. I said, "All oh, right, I'll just delete it now mm. because I wasn't. I was on it for hours. Um, I was just procrastinating, and I deleted it, and I never went back on it mm. until there about five or six months ago. Okay. So it has been a mm. learning curve. I've really gotten into Twitter, though. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Well, that's honest. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, what Saoirse McHugh, the person, would like to do if you become a politician, if you're elected to the European Parliament. If elected to the European Parliament, what I would love to do would be, I'd love to be involved in cap reform. So a lot of it has been negotiated already, but the next parliament will have the final say on it. Mm. Um, do farmers like you? I think one on one they do. Mm. I definitely think But not in terms of do. policy because green policy doesn't sit well with farmers, does it? I think that's a narrative that doesn't have the stable foundation that it kind of seems to have. Like, if you look at the farmers in Ireland now, mm. a lot of them are in big trouble. You know, someone said to me, oh, the Greens just want to drive the farmers off the land. The farmers are going off the land anyway. Not because of the Greens. It is definitely well, like Well, I'm sure you don't want to drive the farmers off the land, but the cattle, do you want, not want to reduce the national cattle herd? I do think we need to reduce the herd, and I think that would mm. only benefit farmers. The suckler industry is totally on its knees, and the real issue I see is farmers are leaving the land, and you cannot, whatever you think, you, there'd be no way to introduce... Uh, like increasing biodiversity mm. or environmental measures if there's not farmers on the land. Last year, 25% of land sales in Ireland was sold to businesses. So I think it's vital we keep people on the land because otherwise we have no hope in doing things like reducing the herd or bringing back space for nature or different things like that. Um, I think reducing the herd... So it's a bit of a paradox in a way because we... We're increasing and increasing and increasing. But of course, if you flood the market, like we have to export, we're constantly looking for new um, export markets. Who who does it benefit? It benefits mm. the people who get the beef and milk levy and it benefits the meat processors and it benefits the retailers. The farmers are working more and more and more for the same amount of money. So we have to, I suppose, look at where we want the power in our food chains to be. And what I'd like to do in Europe would be to bring in a common food policy because the agricultural policy is just an agricultural productive production policy. And I think if you could have an overarching governance structure that would centre food and farmers at the centre of our, of our agricultural systems, because agriculture is really where there's an interface between society, environment and economy, like nowhere else, I think. And we need to bring into line trade, we need to bring into line supermarkets, consumer attitudes, health, foods, health and food mm. safety and agriculture if this, if we're to have like a holistic food system that works for everyone. Because at the moment, it's not. Is it possible? Because you're talking about a, a lot of vested interests and everybody wants the biggest piece of the pie. Yeah. And sure, affect them. I'm not allowed to say that, am I? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it is possible. And I think people, there's an attitude, there's an appetite for it now. Mm. I think people are looking around and be like, everything is broken. Like, supermarkets get so much. And yet, on the other hand, people are worried about climate change. And we know that land use and agriculture mm. is a huge um, leverage point there. We have cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death in Europe, of which I think 49% of cases have dietary related issues. Everyone knows that 
things are wrong and we just mm. have to elect different people. Do you think people are actually worried about climate change? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm. Like I've why gone in- why, If that was true, why wouldn't they uh, decide to do something about it? I mean, I, we live in a, a world where people talk a, a lot uh, about things that they don't mean. Uh, yeah. And that's the Twitter world that you were talking about. Uh, where you, so much. <laughs> you, you, you like and retweet and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but when it comes to it, uh, people don't want to pay more for fuel. Uh, they want items to be packaged in whatever way that they're selling. And that's why supermarkets sell them in that uh, type of thing. I don't think it's that simple. I think that people are trying. Like people are breaking their hearts buying like mm. beeswax wrap instead of cling film and people are trying. Some. Some. Yeah. Look um, at the yellow vest protests. Yeah. But that was that was also in conjunction with the fact that there was like only 10% of that tax was ring fence for social measures and the rest was just revenue. Um in terms of that, I think, you know, we are stuck in systems, so people can do so much and everyone can turn off light switches and stuff. Actually, the re- the mm. day I was like, yes, this is the right thing for me to do to run was the day that my colleague, Grace O'Sullivan, she's running down in the south, asked Richard Bruton why on the same day that he launched his like government action energy plan or whatever the name of it was, uh, did he grant new drilling licenses? And he said that because along the lines of there's no point in stopping the companies because the individuals had to change first. And I just felt so cross because I drive a car. I live in a rented house that burns coal. I'm not going to be able to retrofit that. Um, and so much of the systems we're in aren't changeable by an individual. Like the, I can buy so much beeswax paper and still like the big changes like our fuel sources, our electricity sources have to come top down change. And I thought that was a real like kind of weaselly way out and then, you know, telling people to choose smaller houses as if that is something people like buying a shop. Okay, well, people have the opportunity to vote for you if they wish on the 24th of May. Good luck with the campaign. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you indeed. That's uh, Saoirse McHugh, who's uh, the Green Party candidate in uh, the election for the European Parliament in this constituency. Michael Reed on LMFM. On the 24th of May, you will be asked to vote in the local and European elections as well as a referendum on divorce. Our local election pre-election coverage will feature debates with candidates from each of the local areas every day in the run-up to polling day. We hope to speak to as many local election candidates as possible. The larger political parties are selecting which candidates to put forward while independents and others are being selected to participate through draws. Today, we'll hear from four candidates in the Dundalk South electoral area, each of whom will hope to take one of the seven available seats. After the break, we'll debate the issues with Maria Doyle of Fine Gael, Fianna Falls, Emma Coffey, Marianne Butler of the Green Party and independent candidate Maeve Yor. Michael Reed on LMFM. Our debate today with uh, four candidates in uh, the Dundalk South electoral area. Each of uh, the candidates are sitting councillors and we'll say good morning uh, to Maria Doyle of Fine Gael, Emma Coffey of Fianna Fáil, Marianne Butler of uh, the Green Party and independent Maeve Yor. Let's uh, take up on the conversation we had with our European candidate uh, Saoirse McHugh with Marianne Butler who is also a member of uh, the Green Party uh, and she was contending that people actually do care uh, about climate change. I was wondering if that is uh, the case or if people are, are saying what they would like 
to feel uh, rather than the way they would like to behave uh, because nobody wants to pay more in taxes or to pay more for fuel or the, uh, the, the other consequences of protecting the environment. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I agree with what um, Saoirse says. It's definitely coming up more on the doors. It's more relevant. The urgency is definitely there. Um, you know, and it's it's been made evident. We like Greta Thunberg has done amazing work in raising awareness of this through the school strikes. So it is it mm. is literally coming up all the time. But you um, seem to think that Richard Bruton was paying platitudes to it. Look, we need action now and we need action from the top. I think people are making individual choices to buy electric vehicles, to uh, make changes to their homes, how they shop, what they shop. We saw the Sick of Plastic Day um, a couple of Saturdays ago. Um, But we need leadership from the top at this stage because we can't change what fuel goes into the buses. It's up to the government to do that. Um, There's so many things we just can't change, but the government can change. And things like... um, Keep, keeping fossil fuels in the ground, very simply, you know, um, supporting renewable energies. You know, we've, um, and that was one of the, the, the calls from the student strikers. They really wanted 100% renewable energy mm. in this country by 2030. And it's very doable. Maria Doyle, that was probably a little bit embarrassing for Fine Gael <coughs> to have young people tell you what's right to do. No, I think we have to, I mean, I'm a primary school teacher and I certainly believe in listening to young people uh, and their voices are very important. And I do think the government will and have been listening to those young people. I mean, for example, um, a number of months ago, um, there was a parliamentary party meeting of Armley House specifically on climate change. And I think uh, in government, we are trying to to take this on board and, you know, um, that it's not just an issue for the Green Party, it's an issue for us all in government and out of government and for each of us individually to make changes to how we live our lives. I mean, I certainly see it in... um, in, and, and I suppose Marianne mentioned uh, Greta there and in children's uh, opinion towards uh, looking after their environment looking after the climate in the 15 years I've been a teacher I've seen huge change and a huge engagement from young people and I think young people can have a huge influence then on their on their parents and Would, I think would you drive an electric car? I would certainly drive an electric car yeah, yeah. yeah. How far? Uh, well I mean <laughs> uh, luckily I, I actually don't have a need to do Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. A huge amount of driving yeah. and we're, we're lucky in our municipal district as well is yeah. is geographically quite, quite small. So I would drive an electric car and uh, um, I, I'd like to see, I suppose, the cost of, of making those choices reduced. Um, but I know for people who are commuting and going long distances, it's more difficult. But I think the choices are, are improving and increasing. And um, I think... In, you know, each of us in our own lives can mm. make can make changes. Um, I mean, certainly we've seen in our in our municipal district in Dundalk South some of the impacts of climate change with regards to flooding, and it's a huge issue, and it's one that I've been working on for the last number of years. Um, and we have received or we have been granted forty million by the government through the CFRAM, the coastal uh, and um, the fluvial. Mm. Uh, program to improve our flood defences. So, I mean, that's that's something where we're showing our commitment to, to uh, looking at these issues. But yeah, there's a lot more to do, mm. no doubt. Mm. Maybe, or would you drive an electric car? I'd drive an electric car if I could afford to drive an electric car, Michael. Mm. Um, there's also an issue with the ESB recharging um, points for electric cars and loud. I've raised that loads of times. Um, I think anything that can help our environment, as you know, I'm not putting up posters. I don't agree with posters. I think they're a waste of money. There's 94 posters between my house and the Avenue Road, which is just beside Sloan Shop, yeah. um, to the M1 um, cut off to go on the bypass. 94 posters. I mean, it's ridiculous. And um, we can all do platitudes, etc., etc. But the bottom line is we have to take action. You know, and I think it starts actually from us on the ground. I think it starts from our children teaching us. Like I didn't know half anything about recycling mm. until my children started school. So um, I, it's up to each and every one of us to make the stand. Mm. Emma Coffey, do you find it uh, to be an issue that's raised with you on the doorsteps? Uh, not so much on the mm. doorsteps, but I can say to you that I have uh, done an, over the last year, I have visited a number of secondary schools where it is a constant mm. issue with the students. and Maybe the next, next election. Uh, well, election I, 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 think, yeah. mm. I think our generation of politicians, mm. shall we say, have a responsibility to actually engage in in climate action Mm. uh, and um, set down the foundations because it is going to be an issue for that generation that's coming up, particularly, um, you know, 13-year-olds to 18-year-olds are very much concerned about it. And it's the one area that I think, you know, when you go into the classrooms, they're talking about it. Um, And, you know, it's up to us. We we have all, every day, through everyday uh, Mm. living, We've all got used to a disposable way of living and be it, you know, um, disposable clothes, disposable plastics, disposable everything without even thinking. So I think we, we, you know, it's all well and good putting legislation in, but we have to change the mindset (coughs) socially. Uh, And I think it's good for particularly local county council councillors to actually go into the schools. It actually gives you a very a greater insight (coughs) of what people, young people see their future because it is their mm. future um, and it's something that we all have to engage with um, very much so <laughs> I agree with what's happened the practicalities of getting an electric mm-hmm. car the practicalities of cost effectiveness of it uh, we have to make that choice yeah and possibly part of tomorrow's <coughs> world if it's not today's uh, but electric car or petrol car diesel car green card in the car. Uh, We had expected that this election would be uh, dominated by Brexit. Uh, Brexit has been put into respite uh, to some degree, but no doubt it's on uh, the minds of people in Dundalk. Uh, Has it gone off the agenda on the doorsteps? No. No. 
Um, I I haven't found it. Uh, most stores that I've spoken to, they're sick of talking about it, mm. uh, quite frankly. But there is a fear about it, um, and they're not getting much comfort um, in, as to what has been said um, by you know our our leaders, our mm-hmm. government, our government, our parties. Um, but in fairness to Ireland. We're very much a bystander in regards to what's happening. Everybody is in Europe with what's going on in in, in the UK. Um, it's been put on sleep, shall I say, mm. for the moment. But it's still very much uh, <coughs> out there. There's a concern about education, uh, particularly third level education. Will students have the the mutual recognition of going to third level? There's a concern about businesses, small businesses, um, who who go there's over a concern and back. about peace. And there's concern, a big concern about peace. Mm. Big concern about people very much mm. recently, um, and the uh, and and quite frankly, the escalation of shall I say even localized crime is mm. a mirror. You know, they're they're nearly saying, is it because mm. of what's happening? Is that vacuum coming across the border? Mm. Is that's what is you know? Are we going back to the bad old yeah. days? Um, so I mean, that's what I've I've found on the doors. Yeah, and uh, everybody seems to be in a, agreement with that. I can tell by uh, mm. how uh, everybody is nodding their head. Uh, do you think, uh, Maria Doyle, that uh, people? have kind of put their concerns uh, about business and movement uh, and uh, education, these other issues, uh, on hold to some degree whilst peace dominates now in, in terms of the border. Yeah, I think so. And, and as Emma mentioned there, uh, the you know increase perhaps or the perceived increase in, in crime and obviously the, the ATM burglaries and mm. uh, thefts of the ATM <coughs> machines. And then uh, more recently in the last week, we've had three sort of serious um, burglaries in, in the Dundalk area where people were tied up in their own homes mm. and I think that's a huge concern. So yes, I mean the overall you know peace on the island of, of course is a huge issue for people and, and, and the murder of, of Lyra McKee highlighted that you know that you know there's there is it could be an issue there but also more locally in our town people are really concerned about how Brexit and how any any as, as I mentioned the vacuum or any um, changes uh, could impact on, on peace in their own homes mm. and people want to be safe in their own homes I, you know ultimately and um, so those three burglaries in, in, mm. since they happened in the last few days I've had that They're on, on several they? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. shocking it, not it, acceptable it, mm. it drives me nuts the way the target old people loved mm. them it, it, it really is incredible it seems as though there's two very young people involved in all of these yeah. burglaries. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think they've been captured on CCTV and uh, they're still at large and undoubtedly they'll carry out more of these type of burglaries. Yeah, but the law has to change, Michael. The law has to change. The law errs on the side of criminals in this country, in my opinion, not on like le- free legal aid, you know, in suspended out out again in suspended out again the law has to change we have to take a stand especially for our old people I'm fed up of our old people being vulnerable Uh, I mean I was talking to the son of one of them people and he said imagine how we feel imagine how we feel that our our family is after me and uh, this is happening day in day out in Ireland we need to change the the justice system in Ireland. There's we need to support the, the victims and not support yeah. the criminals. The, and I'm fed up with the do-gooder saying, oh, the poor criminals, they come from a deprived background. I come from a deprived background. My mm. mother was a widow with 37. She raised six of us. I was 14 months. My sister was 11. We're all normal, engaging, community-focused people mm. that work and, and, you know, get involved in our community. I, I'm fed up of these do-gooders, you know. In what sense... I'm fed up because people keep saying, oh, God help them, did this, did that. Oh, you know, like we've a drugs issue that we've never addressed. Mm. Um, 
successive governments have kicked it down the, the road. You know what I mean? We have yeah. to address the drugs issue. We have mm. to address the mental health issue. There's loads of different factors involved. And mm. I feel sorry for the guards. But are you not saying the same thing in a, a different way from the people that you call the do-gooders who are saying, well, look, maybe we should take a, a step back and look at what the cause of these problems are? No, Why the, do people No, the do-gooders, they're poor them. They deserve free legal aid. They, they don't offer solutions. You know, they're great at, you know, poor them, poor them. Per the victim and But everybody deserves free legal aid if no, they I can't don't afford agree. legal representation. No, I, I don't agree. I think maybe once free legal aid, but certainly not several times free legal aid. That's costing mm. the taxpayers money. I don't, Michael. There's no okay. point in telling I do, and I, but I don't. Mm. Yeah, no. I okay. think, Michael, on that, just I think it's, you know, it's probably quite frustrating for the Gardaí as well, yes. who, um, you know, investigate these crimes. And then when people come to court, um, often that they, you know, they're back out in the streets again. And I yeah. suppose I agree with Maeve in that regard and that we need to, to make sure that people who are a danger to uh, anyone in our society, particularly the vulnerable, like the elderly, mm. um, need to, people need to be safe from them. So um, it's probably something we need to to just look at and I think on that level though the reality of it is is that our prison system we don't have the capacity mm. um, so mm. there is nowhere to put reoffending uh, reoffending criminals say on bail I mean I, I as you know mm. I'm a solicitor I have gone into court so many times where people have breached bail conditions and they have got further bail because there is simply not the capacity mm. to hold these people. Well, most burglaries are carried out by people on bail or when people yeah. are on bail they carry out yeah. more burglaries than they exactly. would have otherwise. So, I, yeah. I mean, we have, we have to do a root, we have to do a root mm. and branch investment uh, in regards to our bail system, our prison service, and, you know, be mm. it in a, a temporary, you know, where people are on remand um, for pending further charges. Mm. We have all of that to, to, to look at. Okay, well, I suppose you could say that's all wrapped up, but it's never as simple as no, that. It's no, it's not. It's not. But I'm saying to you, mm, they, they, they would be the two areas that I see as the sure, big issue. Sure, but I just wanted to expand yeah. the conversation, not trying to contradict yeah. you or anything yeah. like that. Let but me bring Marion Butler, because just, there's just mental health and drugs as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, one, one of the good news stories, I think, in the last couple of months is that we now have a drugs, a dedicated drugs unit um, with the Gardaí now in Dundalk. Um, and I'm looking forward to the work of that mm. continuing and getting on top of it. But yeah, we do need community addiction services for people to get them clean and back on the right track. Um, I, d- I do agree what people are saying. Like repeat offenders do need to be um, dealt with by the court system. But also, I suppose opportunities need to be there in our prison systems to get people off drugs mm. and to get them clean and get them back in society. I was kind of amused this morning hearing prison officers uh, wanting to stop people smoking in prisons uh, because I, I think there's a lot of people who would think that a, a blind eye is turned to, to drug usage because it sedates prisoners. Okay. Well, I, I know like we had a, a meeting we had a meeting in Bay State maybe a week mm. ago and like some of the issues that came up were, you know, the dealers are mm. giving um, you know, a, a free sample of heroin and another mm. free sample of heroin, then somebody's hooked. And then they are into a life of crime to pay for this, you know, unless they can be treated with community addiction services. And we have to be mm. keeping that door open to people. We really do. Okay, but parents have to parent as well, but, but, Michael. But, but, from the but word go, is, parents have to parent. But why is it a, a life of crime? Is it necessary to be a life of crime? I mean, could you not be a heroin user and not need to steal, break into people's houses, or prostitute yourself to fund your habit? I think I think the costs involved are forcing mm. people. Well, yeah. I, I don't like. Is it, 
Well, that's because the drugs they, are they, they are addicts, you yeah, know, and that's the drugs and we are, need There's a lot of alcohol addicts. There's a lot of well, nicotine addicts. Yeah, but there's yeah. a lot of gambling addicts. Lot when of, you're an addict, yeah, you're an yeah, addict, yeah, and yeah, you'll mm, go to certain yeah, lands to feed yeah. that And because, because this drug is prohibited, it's expensive. Does it need to be prohibited? Uh, yes, it does, because heroin is a blight okay. on society. Does cocaine need to be prohibited? I'm not. I believe that all Cannabis? Yes, I agree. Alcohol? Look, you... In regards to alcohol, as it's a society issue, but in in respect of whether we all whether well, we you look at cannabis, it. It, it's yeah, legal on, we across. Have I don't know how many we states have in America and how many on countries. Alcohol mm-hmm. Sales. We mm-hmm. don't sell alcohol to under 18s. You've just heard that there's certain there's certain behaviours that are going on in Dundalk that where children are being supplied mm. with illegal with illegal drugs. If if a child goes in to buy alcohol in a shop, the shop owners are prosecuted, and there's a there is regulation among them. I don't believe that drugs are drugs um, be it, you know, people have an argument of cannabis. Um, the Green Party has an argument for cannabis and other drugs the decriminalisation of drugs, isn't that? They do but I, like my own personal opinion mm. is I don't support the legalisation of cannabis. I think where our party is coming from is to make it um, a medical issue as opposed to a criminal issue to, to get people clean again. But I certainly don't support um, the wide sale supply of cannabis to anybody. I think it is dangerous. I think it's a gateway drug. I think it particularly affects our teenagers mm. at a certain age. It can cause psychosis. I think what we're hearing now is what is available now is far stronger than what may have been available years and years ago. And it's having uh, an, an awful effect mm. on our children. There is, like, we had the statistics from um, the it, Community Guard uh, in mm-hmm. Bay State a week ago, and, like, the, the numbers are coming down. Thankfully, the message is getting through to our young people not to go there. I don't know about that. Maeve, you're, uh, uh, you, you are obviously very opposed uh, to decriminalisation or legalisation of drugs, but is the argument not a little bit like climate change? No, Tell it to the children. Michael, I have no solution to the drug problem. But I think drastic times call for drastic measures. And I'm not saying I'm against it. I honestly don't know how I feel about that. I think what we've done so far hasn't worked, so we have to look at something drastic in another way. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think... um, I think it's a huge problem that's only going to escalate because we keep ignoring it. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem in mm. secondary schools in Dundalk. I mean, the secondary schools, most of them don't allow the children out for lunch because once they're outside the building, the drug dealers are at, at the gate of the school and they have no you know, control mm. over it. But the bottom line is, from the word go, parents have to parent. Parents need to know where their children are. Now, that sounds simplistic, but it starts when they're teenagers. Do you know what I mean? They have to know where they are, who they're hanging around with, what they're, they're doing. And I don't have a solution to the drugs problem, mm. but we need to do something drastic times for drastic measures. We're in an awful state in our country, in the world probably. Mm. With drugs, well, it's a, you know. a, a different world than it was five years ago when oh, yeah. each of you stood for election mm-hmm. last time around. Uh, do you think in five years from now, Maria, that uh, we'll be talking about the problems uh, that have escalated over the last five years, uh, namely the prevalence of drug usage and uh, how people are 
dealing it and the gangland crime that comes with that and uh, the problems like burglaries and so on uh, that have resulted from all of that, that these type of problems will be more prevalent? Well, I hope not. And I hope that in five years' time, you know, we won't be discussing it. Um, I know there will always be issues, there will always be problems that will require solutions. And I'm sure that we don't can't even see that far into the future to know what it would be specifically we'll be discussing in five years' time. But I think that any discussion, and even a discussion that we're having today about this issue mm. is always helpful. Um, I, I, you know, I think that crime, if crime pays, crime will continue. Um, but we meet, we have a, a joint policing committee, which we meet uh, once a quarter with the with the local guardie, with the uh, chief superintendent. Mm. And there's very open communication there. And any queries or questions we have or any issues that are arising locally, we put it put it to the Gardaí and um, they come back to us with you know what they're doing and as Marianne mentioned the, the drugs unit is definitely a step forward in Dundalk and I'd like to see that having a really really positive effect on our community um, but I think that drugs is, is, is a huge issue and just based uh, going on from what the other said I mean I, I agree again that I think it's a gateway drug and it, 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 cannabis is, is is not good for the, the teenage brain let's say you know for teenagers who are um, uh, who are growing and I, I think that you know but I think it's really important that as parents and as as a local authority and as in schools that we communicate with children as to, you know, teenagers in particular, as to why we want them to, you know, as as um, Nancy Reagan said, mm-hmm. just say no, you know, to avoid uh, getting into drugs okay. in the first place. But just just, uh, just very quickly one. before we finish, because we've uh, run our course this morning, uh, maybe you'd uh, tell us what else might change over the course of ne- the next five years if you're elected, Maria Doyle. Uh, well, I've feel I've been a very effective and uh, a councillor over the last five years. I've worked consistently hard. Uh, I, if I'm elected, I would continue to do so. I have delivered on projects that I, I said I would. Uh, for example, um, improved infrastructure in particular is one issue that I'm very concerned to improve footpaths, improve uh, road infrastructure, getting uh, hou- housing states taking in charge, which is a huge issue that I get at the doors. I'll continue to work on those issues or any issues that people uh, bring up to me. I'm, I've taken a career break from my teaching job to commit to being a public representative um, and I will continue to put all my all into it. Okay. Emma Coffey of Fianna Fáil. Yeah, well, um, I, I find it a huge privilege to be put into this position to be a public representative. I think um, my generation in particular are very good at giving out, um, but as to taking responsibility, we're still on the sidelines. And that's why I got in, because I was very good at giving out. Uh, and I decided, well, you know, it's time to put on the jersey and try and do something about it. And times it's ultimately very frustrating, but other, other times very rewarding. And it, it actually is life changing for me personally, because I see so much is given by ordinary people to the community. And if I can help in any way, which I have, um, over the years, I have involved in community organisation and funding. I have involved with people having difficulty with housing. Mm-hmm. All of those things. We are a jack of all trades and a master of none as a county councillor. Okay. And that's what I want to be there in their corner to be their voice. OK, Green Party candidate, Marianne Butler. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, so I've, I've 10 years done. I'm looking forward to the next five years if, if, if it's available to me. And that's up to the people. Um, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to the challenge of the next five years. There's still loads of things I want to see happening. Um, I want the Greenway to come into Dundalk, mm. as it does in Waterford, um, to really open, open up the town. Um, I, I want to really see the local authority taking climate change seriously, uh, but also helping people. So I'd love to see um, a, a real push to um, increase the energy efficiency of our social housing stock. 
And yeah, the other thing is I, I really want to put the pressure on the executive to sort out the empty houses in Dundalk and surrounding areas because okay. it is just annoying so many people. And we had a surplus last year of €600,000 and I want to see that put to good use. Okay, and the last word to independent candidate Maeve Yor. Um, Michael, I'm passionate, I'm persistent and I'm committed to our town and county, just as it says on my leaflet. Uh, I strive for quality, value for money, accountability and ownership. I have brought Operation Enable to Louth, which is abuse of disabled parking bays and I want to thank Christy Mangan and all his team for that and John Morgan we've worked on that together I've brought Cycling Without Age to Loud that helps the senior citizens we're going to take them out to nursing homes give them spins around the thing and the Civic Awards um, has been a great thing for Loud I think mm. it recognises ordinary people who do extraordinary things I want to thank my canvassers and I want to thank the people that voted for me because it's been the hardest job I've ever done um, this last five years the loneliest job I've mm. ever done but I've enjoyed it and I know I can do much more Okay well uh, before uh, you leave I should mention that all of our debates are being filmed and on Facebook Live uh, so you might give a, a, a wee wave there as we wrap up and our thanks uh, to Fine Gael's Maria Doyle Emma Coffey of Fianna Fáil the Green Party's Marianne Butler and Maeve your independent candidate Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, the longest murder trial in the history of uh, the state concluded yesterday at 10 to 2. Majority at uh, the Central Criminal Court resulted in the conviction of 50-year-old Pat Quirk for the murder of Bobby Ryan. Let's uh, hear how this is being reported in Tipperary. Anne O'Grady is editor of the Tipperary Star. Good morning to you, Anne, and thanks for joining us. No doubt you've been following this over the last four months or so. Uh, It's been a tale of intrigue, uh, one that has intrigued the whole country, but undoubtedly all the more so in Tipperary, where a lot of uh, the players in the story would be known to people. Yes, good morning. It certainly has been a trial that has attracted an awful lot of attention nationally, but particularly in Tipperary, where it has been followed very keenly uh, for the period that it took place. Um, I think a lot of people thought as the jury um, were deliberating that it might be a hung jury or that it might be difficult for them to come to an adjudication, but they did in in the end of the day. And um, I suppose um, for the family of, of Bobby Ryan, it's uh, you know, it's it's a, a result for them, and it's it's a closure to some degree in in relation to his death. Mm. Uh, and uh, they've been searching for answers for some time. They had yes. When he went missing, uh, there was a, per- a long period of searching for him. The family, obviously, uh, understandably, but were very distressed. They were fearful that something had happened to him, and it, it was a long period to be to be searching for answers. Mm. Uh, it wasn't uh, being treated as a, a murder investigation for some 22 months, was it? No, it was just being treated as a missing person. Um, and it wasn't until the body was discovered that it then changed mode into a murder investigation. But during the, the period that he was missing, it was it was strictly a missing person's case at that, at that point. Right. Uh, and the body was discovered, uh, ironically, by Patrick Quirk. Yes. Uh, he had rented lands from Mary Lowry and he um, was vacating those lands at her request and um, uh, he found the body uh, in the tank and reported it, at least his wife reported it to, to Gardaí. Uh, and this is uh, this uh, peculiar love triangle, which uh, is said to have been the motivation for this. Uh, a lot of uh, this uh, is uh, based 
on uh, the conjectural evidence uh, that was put before the court uh, by the Gardaí because there was no crime scene uh, as such uh, and no crime weapon. No, they've never been found, nor have Bobby Ryan's clothing. Uh, None of that was, was available to the prosecution, so it was all very much based on circumstantial evidence. Um, but uh, uh, they eventually um, got their their verdict, a guilty verdict. Closure, undoubtedly, for the family, uh, as uh, people would have seen uh, Bobby Ryan's uh, children, Robert and Michelle, hold his photograph outside of uh, the court yesterday, saying that justice had uh, been served. Uh, what 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 are people saying locally? Locally, I think people feel great sympathy for the Ryan family. You know, it has been a protracted and and very difficult period for them. It's been, um, you know, nearly eight years now since it, it started. Um, and Bobby would have been a very popular figure uh, in his native Cashel and throughout Tipperary. Um, so there was great sympathy for the Ryan family. There's also sympathy, I have to say, for, for, for all of the other families because there, there are children involved in each of the families. So it's, it's traumatic for all of the children involved in this case as well. No doubt that is uh, the case. Uh, uh, and uh, how will you be reporting it in, in uh, the Tipperary Star next week? Well, we've given considerable publicity all over the weeks that has been going on. And in the coming week, we will have all of the evidence that came out yesterday, the, the verdict, and as well as subsequent evidence in relation to what the jury didn't hear and, um, you know, the protracted mm. um, discussions that took place out of the jury's hearing. Um, so we will have a significant coverage of it next week. Uh, and this will have to do with uh, the sex tapes uh, that uh, the judge said uh, weren't uh, necessary, that they could have been prejudicial. Uh, the internet searches uh, in terms of Joe O'Reilly and some of uh, the missing persons in this country. Yes, there was a lot that came out um, yesterday in relation to what was discussed. Uh, you know, what submissions made by the uh, prosecution and defence in relation to the admission of evidence which the judge um, deemed to be um, prejudicial to um, Pat Kirk. So with that, that all came out yesterday and we, we will be covering all of that. Uh, and what about uh, the decision to accept a, a majority verdict? How, how will that rest with people in Tipperary? I think it will rest fine with people in Tipperary. Um, it was a 10-2 majority verdict. Um, that's perfectly acceptable by the courts. So I don't think that it will be viewed in any way other than that the jury deliberated seriously and and took the matter um, very, very, very seriously and adjudicated on all of the evidence that was before them. And their verdict uh, was that he was guilty. Okay. And after 50 weeks, 15 weeks of hearings, uh, but uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us, uh, Anne O'Grady, editor of uh, the Tipperary Star today. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Another busy, busy morning oh, on the good. phone lines. Mm-hmm. Seamus from Dundalk, not a Fine Gael supporter, doesn't think they're doing too bad in government. However, he thinks that Leo Vradker needs to do a reshuffle. He feels that the Housing and Health Minister are not performing as they should be. They've been given the chance to prove themselves, but they haven't because housing and health are both in crisis. Okay, John, the number of homeless people creeping up all the time, he says, and while the government appear to be tackling it, the numbers speak for themselves. More and more people are also struggling to buy a house because of the rising prices. Michael, I'm renting a house in Drogheda. This came in from a listener, didn't want Mm. to be named. Landlord has decided to sell. I have been given proper notice, but I cannot find anywhere I can afford. I'm from the town. 
I work here and in four weeks I will have nowhere to live. I'd like the politicians to come on your show, Michael, and tell me what am I to do? Should I book into a and b Should I sleep on the street? These are real people behind the figures that you talk about. Okay, it's a real problem and uh, best of luck uh, with uh, the house hunting there to that person, whoever it is. Michael, in response to your interview at the top of the programme from Anthony and RD regarding state housing and without turning this inquiry into a racist comment, can your resource staff inquire both from Dundalk and Drada Housing Departments how many of their housing stock has been given over to foreign nationals, which no politician ever seems to mention as contributing to the problem of a shortage for our own citizens. Simply from the point of view of arithmetic, I know of at least one complex entirely taken up by housing foreign nationals, which I would suggest is adding severely to the shortage. And this is without any comment on who is the more deserving. But while this influx of migrants remains, all available housing will be swallowed up. You have a large number in Mosny and other similar places looking to come out into the housing market. This is an example of what I'm talking about, says Anthony. Right, well, that's a terribly racist comment. How come the real homeless are never counted on the streets when they are talking about homeless people, says another listener. You see them on streets, beside canals, in doorways, and it doesn't seem that these are counted as homeless. Okay, well, sometimes uh, there are the unseen homeless, yes. I'm shocked. Moving on then from mm, that, Michael, okay. to the, mm. the interview with Stephen McMahon about the doctor mm. uh, being moved from duty at Navin Hospital. Yeah. Yes, mm, mm. Uh, a listener says, I'm shocked at the background uh, to this story and that doctors are not checked before they commence a job in a hospital. Uh, mm. County Loud listener says, I just want to make a comment in relation to two issues you covered on the show in the last few days. The first in relation to another data breach at the hospital. No one was held responsible or accountable, Michael, for the previous ones. Mm. Will this happen? And now we have a doctor who has been struck off in the UK, yet he was employed at Navin. Who was responsible for giving this person the job? Nobody seems to be held accountable in the HSE. Uh, it's a remarkable story uh, because uh, there's a, an international register uh, which uh, h- it noted uh, how he had been struck off in the UK but uh, it wasn't uh, picked up on by the authorities here. And just staying with that story, Stephen McMahon just was back on to me, Michael. Okay. If I could give out the mm-hmm. email address for oh, any patients who would like mm-hmm. to get in touch, it's info at irishpatients.ie. Okay. He just forgot to mention it at the end of All the interview. Right. Info at irishpatients.ie and that's available from the radio station if uh, you wish uh, to get in touch with us. Uh, Charlie was listening in to your interview with the Green Party candidate Saoirse McEwen says that she, he felt it was a really she gave a class interview is how oh, okay. he put it. Yeah. She was mm. a joy to listen to an awful lot of realism there says mm. Charlie from yeah. Navin. Uh, Jean however says I would have liked to vote for Saoirse McEwen but the Green Party put me off. I have an 05 Opel Vectra and it's costing me 720 in tax on it. I only drive to the shop and to the church, Michael, on a potholed road. Tax should be on petrol pay when you drive, says okay. Jean. All right, OK. Well, I'm not sure why she's blaming the Green Party on that, but OK. <laughs> That's the comment. Uh, finally then, if I can go to Teresa, just going back to the, the gangland feuds that has been dominating the show over the past couple of days. She Teresa just wants to make a point. She says, I wouldn't like a family member to be a, a member of the Garda Shikana nowadays, Michael, they seem mm. to uh, put up with a lot and then they really are putting themselves in danger in comparison to years ago when you look at the violence that's on our streets now. Mm. And she says they go out in the morning and we must remember that they may not be alive 
that evening mm. and I feel that they don't get enough support from the government it is a dangerous job and they should be looked after much better Okay well they might get the support of people on Saturday just to remind you that a demonstration will take place at 4 o'clock on Saturday if uh, you wish uh, to stand in solidarity uh, with the people against what's been happening and uh, the criminality uh, that has taken hold of Drogheda that's at 4 o'clock on West Street in Drogheda this coming Saturday. Thanks for that, Marie. And to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government met yesterday with a cabinet meeting in Cork approving new laws which will tackle digital abuse, digital stalking, revenge, pornography and upskirting. Let's talk about this with Grace McCardle, manager with the Rape Crisis North East Centre. Good morning, Grace, and Good thanks morning. for joining us. A lot of these terms are, are, are relatively new to uh, a lot of us, uh, but they're very much a, a part of the modern world that we live in and and are all very real crimes for those who are impacted by them? Absolutely. Well, um, it's been three years in the making. And as we know, the original bill drafted by Labour leader Brendan Helen, which was based on the 2016 report by the Law Reform Commission. But I have to say, first of all, as manager of Rape Crisis Northeast and chairperson of Rape Crisis Network Ireland, we very much welcome the proposed legislation which seeks to create offences for the non-consensual distribution of intimate images with intent to cause harm or distress, including what is called revenge porn. And the fact that the government will also provide for a separate offence to deal with another image based form of harmful communication, which is termed as obscurting. And this proposed legislation is very important and very necessary. And it's reassuring to see that the law is catching up with new technology, with mobile phones becoming more and more intelligent and cameras being included as a standard feature on most models. Sharing images has never been so quick mm. and so easy and this has led to an increased amount of people of sharing intimate images with their partners via social media, texting and other instant messaging services. And when you say the laws are, are necessary, I take it that means uh, that this type of offence is relatively commonplace or relatively common. It is, and and we have seen um, a substantial increase in our helpline um, of people ringing ringing us to get some support around this and also receiving one-to-one counselling support um, around this particular area. I mean, rape crisis centres were facing many challenges in relation to rape and sexual abuse but we're now in this new era of what is known as the digital age, mm. which is an additional challenge to our services. And we find, particularly with young people, they're, they are the most vulnerable when it comes to social media and, and may be subjected to having their images without their consent posted on social media. And even if they have consented, they may not be aware of the impacts this may have on their lives and the fact that others will have access to these images the difficulty in having these images removed and how it can also lead to serious cases of bullying and isolation. And what's your view on it, or does the Rape Crisis Network have a, a view on uh, the gravity of these offences? Would you see it as uh, a sexual offence? Oh, absolutely. Um, it certainly is um, a sexual offence. And, you know, the impacts are very same um, as other types of sexual offences. I mean, we see firsthand the impacts 
that revenge porn epigurtin has on our clients and the high, le- the high levels of distress it causes. And when such an image of, um, um, such a sexual image or video is shared with others, um, without the consent of the person in that image, that person is then not in control of who sees the picture of themselves. Mm. And this lack of control and feeling of humiliation can negatively affect the victim psychologically and jeopardize future relationships. This type of sexual act, um, it not only has psychological, but also emotional and physical effects on the victim. Mm. It can lead to anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders, sleep disorders, attempted suicide, and then and then the actual taking of one's life. Right. Uh, and that's the impact on the victim, uh, which is a similar response, I suppose, to other sexual offences. Uh, but yeah, from yeah. the perpetrator's point of view, it's probably similar as well in that it, it, it is a, a power grab of sorts. It's a, an attempt to humiliate somebody else, whether that's in a, a physical or a digital sense. Uh, the, the psychological uh, approach to it is very similar, is it not? Um, absolutely. Um, and from the perpetrator's point of view, um, I mean, it's a very easy and quick method of humiliating um, a person. Um, and I suppose, I suppose the good thing here is under Mr. Helen's legislative proposal, he states the maximum prison term for, for such offences is seven years mm. and also proposes other sentences of 12 months in prison or, or possibly fines depending on the seriousness of the crime and and our sector is very much in favour of such a, such a sentence, and we do believe that the offender receives a substantial um, um, punishment. Mm. Um, in terms of a fine, I am not so sure if it would act as a deterrent, but I suppose it, it really does depend on the serious of, of the crime. But Brendan Helen has been saying they should be put on the sex offenders register, and that would act as a, a deterrent. Absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. A sexual mm. crime has been committed; consent was not given. And therefore, the people who engage in such crimes are sex offenders and should serve their time in prison. It's odd, though, isn't it? Uh, And hard to understand. I I mean, if you went into Penny's and took a a photograph of ladies' underwear, I mean, it wouldn't warrant being put on the sex offenders register. I I mean, you wonder what people get out of this. It's difficult for people to understand, uh, but it comes back to this psychological aspect of humiliating somebody, the power that the perpetrator feels that gives them and the humiliation that the victim feels. Absolutely. I mean, we work um, very, for example, we work very closely with, with schools and, you know, it's, it's the impact that it has on the person um, that had the image taken of them, but it also impacts um, not just in them, but also family and friends. And if you would take that into the context of the size of a school and myself with daughters, um, they're friends with everybody in school on Facebook and social media. Mm. So if they receive this image of a friend um, who has been, you know, um, sexually exploited this way, um, there could be 400 students in that school that have access to this image and they don't know what to do about it. They don't know, you know, what they should be doing or if they did something, could something similar happen to themselves? Could they be, you know, bullied as a result of that? And, and that is why we badly need, alongside this legislation, additional resources such as specialised preventative programmes, specialised education programmes, to be delivered in primary schools, secondary schools and third level institutions. Okay. Um, because we've seen this impact young people as young as 
11 years of age. My God. And our young people, they need to be protected. Grace, I've, I've just run out of time. Before uh, we hang up, uh, maybe uh, you could give us uh, some contact details if people do wish to make contact with you. Yes, absolutely. Um, our helpline number is 1800 21 21 22. And please, anyone out there who has experienced um, any form of um, this type of um, exploitation, don't be afraid to call us. We okay. have somebody here to, to speak to you. All right, that's one 800 Grace McCardle, manager of the Rape Crisis Northeast Centre. Thank you for joining us. That's where our time runs out. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am, LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.